season of Music for PhDs is all about music and language, how they're related, how they're different, how they impact our social and emotional lives. Last episode, we determined that music is not, in fact, a language, though there have been attempts to bring them closer. For this episode, we're going to talk about how babies learn, because there's a lot of overlap between absorbing speech patterns and musical patterns. My PhD research was in a hearing lab where I worked with babies, kids, and adults. Music is a really great way to study the development of hearing. So even though I don't do much music or hearing research these days, music plus babies is a topic that's really close to my scientist heart. (laughs) Which is why we're going to feature some music composed specifically for babies. The Happy Song was created by Imogen Heap with help from science and her daughter. And I'm so thrilled to say we're going to hear from both Dr. Casper Adiman, who is the director of Goldsmith's Infant Lab, and Imogen Heap herself. So you just told us about how your doctoral research focused on music. It was a lot about how babies learn, is that right? That was definitely part of it. I worked in an auditory perception lab, so lots of our research projects there were related to hearing. And music is a particularly rich way to learn things about how people hear. Hearing and music also intersect with lots of other parts of being a human being. So everything from how your perceptual system and your senses develop in your lifetime to how people learn the rules that are typical for members of their own culture. For sure. We actually talked a bit about that last season. We talked about how different cultures have different musical rules and systems, like major and minor keys versus the Paylog scales. Right. And science is interested in figuring out how people learn about those rules and systems. So in the past couple decades, there's a growing field of music perception and cognition research. Studying infants and children like I did is just one tiny part of it. You can learn a lot by studying adults or seniors or even non-human animals. And obviously, there's lots of interest in comparing expert musicians to so-called regular people. I always thought studying kids was the most interesting part. Your auditory processing system, which is hearing, um, develops and changes over the first few years of your life. And like you and I talked about before, over time, people get experience and expertise about everything in the world around them, like languages, faces, voices, and music. So do babies learn language in the same way that they learn Music and scales and that kind of thing? Uh, Like all good questions about science, the answer is yes and also no. (laughs) So yes, in the sense that babies come into the world wired to learn everything around them. It's hard for babies to know what's meaningful and what isn't. So as a way to deal with that, they're basically pattern detection machines Babies use a sponge approach, so they soak in tons of information that's going on around them, and then they sift through it and try to figure out what matters. So it seems kind of obvious to say, but that's why a baby who comes from a French-speaking household gradually learns to speak French, whereas a baby being raised in a house that speaks English learns to speak English. It's about what babies are exposed to. For sure. 
My mom was born in Canada, but grew up speaking a dialect of Chinese because that's what was spoken in her home. Exactly. So since musical norms are different between cultures, just like languages are, people tend to be familiar with musical systems based on their location or their cultural background. A baby in a Western culture may or may not be exposed to lots of Bach and Beethoven played by a symphony orchestra, but some of the same musical rules they use are also used by Beyonce or the Beatles. Or any other musical phenomenon starting with B. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, exactly. So Bach, Beethoven, Beyonce, and the Beatles, for all their differences, tend to use major and minor scales. And they have other musical features, like timing patterns, that are also similar. So members of our culture learn those patterns over time. Having said that, uh, languages are composed of entirely different types of patterns than music is. So even though I'm saying that babies learn language and music by detecting patterns, the two systems don't really overlap for them. So music and language are kind of like apples and oranges in that way. But what about between two different languages? I've heard that speaking French makes it easier to learn another Romance language, like Spanish, for example. Oh yeah, there's definitely truth to that. Languages like French and Spanish are descended from a common ancestor, so they share some characteristics like their grammatical structure and their vocabulary. That means the patterns you use to figure out one can be somewhat useful to understand the other. I actually have a really good example of this. Uh, I was working with a violin student quite a few years ago now, and when he didn't know the answer to a question I asked him, his parents started speaking to him in Spanish, which was the language they spoke at home. Now, I don't speak Spanish, but I do speak a little bit of French. Given that lots of the words are similar and the grammar is pretty close, it was enough that I could understand that she was telling him to smarten up because she thought he wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so I, I turned to her and I reassured her in English that this was something new we were learning and it was okay that he didn't know the answer, but she was pretty surprised. Uh, she hadn't expected me to understand and it's not as though I could have spoken to her in Spanish, but I got enough that I could pick up the gist of what she was saying. I think I get it. So the patterns between the two languages have enough overlap to recognize a few key bits and pieces to find your way. But music patterns and language patterns don't overlap in the same way. Right. Even though the patterns themselves aren't the same, the ability to notice the patterns and then use them to understand the world is actually useful in lots of different kinds of tasks. Lots of what we think of as being an expert or having talent is partly having more practice recognizing patterns when information is complicated. So last episode, you and I talked about sheet music, which is the codified way that people can write down music for people to play. The dots wearing the hats, is that right? Clearly, I don't read music. (laughs) Well, you've got the right idea. So amateur musicians learn to recognize the dots with the hats and the flags and all the rest of it as being music notes. They can decode the instructions and figure out which note to play and how long to hold it down. But expert musicians go several steps farther than that. So when they're rating music, they don't see individual notes on the page and read them one at a time. 
their expertise means that they see patterns within and between the individual notes. So to an expert musician, a pattern like C-G-E-G, C-G-E-G, doesn't just look like eight random notes in a row. In a single glance, experts can see that those eight notes are a C major triad, and they're organized into an Alberti bass pattern. Because experts can take in that complicated information in patterned chunks, they tend to read music more easily, understand it and feel it simpler, and then memorize it faster. There's a chess study that's quoted in, I want to say, every single hack your brain type book, where they showed photographs of chess boards to regular chess players and also to grandmasters. At first, it seemed like the grandmasters had this epic photographic memory until they were shown photographs of chess boards that had nonsense moves. So according to the rules of chess, you would never actually see a board that looked like this. And then the photographic recall just fell apart. That's a fantastic example because it wasn't photographic recall at all. What the Grandmaster chess players had was really advanced pattern recognition. They'd gained it over time as a product of training and also experience. So I'm, I'm not really a chess player, but in a complicated game like chess, there are really established patterns and strategies that expert players know. Even though they'd look similar to my untrained eye, a chess master can tell apart a Sicilian defense and a French defense in a single glance. The 10,000-hour rule for chess masters or violin players gets tossed around a lot, but presumably babies have not spent that amount of time so far. So what gives? Well, babies are trying to figure out what's going on around them pretty much all the time. So they're looking for patterns in the sounds they hear, the things they see, and what they feel. The difference is that unlike adults, babies can pull patterns out of streams of nonsense really fast. Uh, like they can do it within a couple minutes. If you listen to this example, there are patterns in here. Sounds like robots on a summer language exchange. Right. And Sunita, did you hear distinct words when you were listening to the robot language just now? Oh, hard no. Hard pass. I've used examples like this in university classes before, and generally, adults just hear one long, unbroken string of gobbledygook. If you play that entire clip, and the full thing is seven minutes, so we won't inflict that on you all, dear listeners, adults mostly get bored, but babies start to notice patterns. They start to realize that within that long, uninterrupted stream of robot sounds, the syllables to t boo are consistently repeated in that order. The syllables pa to be also always happen together. Now, it doesn't happen instantly, but after seven minutes, you can do tests to show that babies recognize to t boo and pa to be and treat those sequences like words. T to be. But they don't do that for other groups of syllables that never repeat in the seven minute sample. 
Let's listen to the clip one more time. Is it because there are pauses at the start and the end of, what did you say it was, tu-ti-boo? No. Uh, if you listen carefully, there are no pauses or gaps to give away the word boundaries in that sequence. Honestly, though, the way you and I are talking right now also has no pauses between the words. English speakers just imagine pauses in where they expect them to be. Because we already speak English fluently. Right, because we already know the words in English. So babies have to chop up that stream of sound into words and language from their environment. They can do the same pattern detection and chopping up with musical sequences too. So listen to this. <laughs> that is wild. That is robots at summer music camp. <laughs> and, and so you're saying there are musical words in that stream of tones that babies can pick out. Exactly. They can figure out the patterns there too, and they start to have expectations about which sounds happen together and when. Scientists call this type of pattern detection auditory stream segregation, and being able to break up those long series of sounds, if they're musical or speech, is an essential piece of learning the rules. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Casper Adiman. I'm director of Goldsmith's Infant Lab. The goal of the Happy Song was to take everything we know about babies' responses to music and find all the, the positive bits, put them all in one professionally created song. Um, so you're not just trying to create a, a new nursery rhyme or anything like that, but actually like, in a real song, uh, but still taking seriously that, you know, they, the, the audience might be tiny, but they're still, you know, um, active listeners. For sure. And can you tell me a little bit about those elements, those motifs that like were shown to make babies happy and engaged and light up? Yeah. So I guess there's there's a handful of them. And I'll see if I can remember all of them. I mean, one, the, obviously one of the starting things you, well, you should, be in a major key, not in a minor key. And I mean, even that, I guess, is a, is a bit of a surprise, is how do babies know that one, one is happy and one is sad? But they do. The second thing, which I guess, is that it should be fast. But what sounds fast to, a, to us might not sound that fast to a baby. Yours and my heart rate is, what, 60 to 70 beats per minute. A baby's normal arresting heart rate is 100 to 110 beats per minute. 50% faster than we think it is. There are sort of more subtle things. So you want to have a lot of sounds that are clear for them, but that they might not be able to do themselves. So um, a lot of the plosive sounds of the pa pa ba, ba. Having a, uh, a female voice that is something babies prefer to a male voice. But amazingly, they'll even prefer... There's, there've been studies where babies prefer a song that's recorded in the presence of another ba of a baby compared to the same song recorded without the baby there. We took advantage of the fact this was done by this baby club and asked about 2,000 of their, uh, their members, what's the funniest sound? 
And so uh, naturally raspberries and uh, whistles and bells, animal noises. So you're starting to assemble a range of things that you're, are going to appeal to a baby. But obviously that's all going to be assembled by you know, a real composer. Are these motifs, are they universally loved by babies? Or? There, yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's still a, an ongoing thing in research to discover just how much of music is uh, universal and how much is culturally biased. Uh, especially when you're, you're doing things for babies, there will be a, a lot of elements which are just going to be universal. Um, but then again, you know, the lyrics are in English. I wondered if you thought, is music a particularly powerful way to make babies happy? Are they just happy as a baseline and we're tapping into something about them? Do you want to give us some thoughts about music as a means of enjoyment and, mm -hmm. you know, the social pieces? Yeah. The answer to the question is, you know, what is the purpose of music? Why, why do we have music at all? And Ellen Disenyanke is an anthropologist who started trying to answer a, a bigger question. It's like, what is art? And where did it come from? What was its sort of evolutionary purpose? And she doesn't take the sort of the classical patriarchal view that art is a celebration of the life, biggest thing we've ever killed um, or a war song to get us fired up to go fight the other tribe. She sees that art is really at its heart about communicating emotion to somebody else. It's connecting with somebody else. Colwyn Trevathan, who studies the link between mothers and babies. But he sort of sees it as a dance, a co-presence. It's something that happens in the synchrony between them. And that, that this is a really key part of raising a baby, that the mother's role is to regulate the emotions and um, to sort of hold the space for a baby. Um, and this, this role that mothers do could be where music comes from. And so, you know, she then looked at that from a more anthropological point of view and sort of said, that, yeah, that initially that music is this bond between just two people, but actually it's the bond within that whole social group. But the origin of it really is in the, the link between a, a mother singing to a baby. Tell me the story of when you found out that you, as a self-described non-musical person, were going to help Imogen Heap create a song. Like, where were you when you found out? What was what was that like? Uh, yeah, this was this was quite intimidating for me because I uh, had been I've been sacked from playing the violin when I was a tiny schoolboy. I was I was so bad. The teacher passed me on to another teacher who eventually let let me down gently. Hello, I am Imogen Heap. I'm a musician. I'm also a mother. I like to work on projects, music and tech related. And I like, I love to take on projects that um, are about things I don't know. I had a tough time with Scout in the first six months. She had really, really severe colic and it was one long cry. So I was really excited about this idea because if there was one thing that I searched for, it was something that would just break the crying for a few moments, just to reset and just have a breather. Occasionally we had these windows of just peace where she looked happy and content and she wasn't in pain. And I just would really, really 
I mean, that's why I took it on because I wanted to find just to see if I could give these moments to parents. So I just plunked her in front of the microphone and she's, she sings all the time. And I think that she was actually trying to sing a song, which is horsey, horsey, don't you stop. So I think she was actually trying to sing that. And that's what I thought was original. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's actually could be horsey, horsey. That's where the journey began with her throwing me the baton. And um, throughout the throughout the making of the song, you know, she was always threaded into it. In fact, the first sound that you hear on the song is her first laugh, which I feel a bit guilty for that I like immediately got the phone out. Oh my God, she's laughing! Because she did cry for so long, um, this endless long six-month cry. It was just such a joy to to hear her laugh that I, I had to record it. And also, of course, yeah, I'm a musician, so I record lots of things. So, um, yeah, so that is actually her first real full, like, proper belly laugh. <laughs> you know, what kid doesn't like bus, plane, plane? Um, and so that's why I decided to, you know, make the journey about travel. But also because we would spend a lot of time travelling, touring. And I know that we're going to spend time apart. And I wasn't just thinking as her as a child now, I was thinking of me as a mum later in life, how she's going to go off travelling and how I hope that she feels this constant love no matter where we are. It's also my kind of paranoia about what's going to happen in the future when she's not with me all the time and how much I'm going to miss her. And I love all those stories. There's, there's so much packed into it and it really sounds not just like a tool, but also a family history and also almost like a talisman for the for the future and the past so no it's really beautiful i love that yeah thank you yeah i really i really love it i think the nicest moment has to be when we were in a nursery i can't remember where it was somewhere in Vauxhall maybe and um all the team that had been involved were there and tons of babies sitting around and we played it for the first time and it's really sweet you know they're not like immediately turning into like woohoo we're so happy because they were all pretty happy you know they're like they weren't crying their heads off they were just fumbling around you know enjoying whatever they were doing but they did kind of stop and listen and some of them kind of got up and rocked about a bit and you know a bit of head banging so yeah it was just really nice I mean the real effect that I see is literally like I would say oh can I try something and I'd be like look Alexa play the happy song sorry I don't know that. See, she doesn't know it. I'll have words with you later, Alexa. It does work. Um, that's the cool thing. Um, so, yeah, I'm the baby whisperer in Hackney. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so lovely to see every now and then on, you know, on Twitter or Instagram has helped so many parents. Which is amazing. It's it's like this in case of emergency break seal <laughs> type of exactly, tool. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Push the button. But I would like to do more kids songs. I did start to write this really cute little song on the ukulele about evolution. The idea <laughs> of making music about evolution is delightful. I, I fully support this project. I did some kind of very bad maths about how many generations of women it might be back to micro, micro, mitochondrial Eve, mitochondrial Eve. Um, I could say to her, you know, the Royal Abbott Hall, if you filled that with, you know, your mum's 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 mum, that might be, you know, the first-ish human. Um, anyway, I'm probably wrong about that. And there'll be loads of scientists going, look, you've got that all wrong. You can't do that. Let me help you with the songwriting, which is exactly <laughs> what I'd like to do. I would like to collaborate with a scientist on a song about evolution. Absolutely. We'll, we'll put that in there, a call to scientists to collaborate <laughs> on music. Just a day, just a day, just a day. 
Definitely, the happy song feels childlike and delightful. It has this immediate sticky quality that pretty much tattoos itself on the inside of your brain. I don't have kids, but I now know this song by heart. Maybe I'll become the baby whisperer of Calgary. I wanted to bring a finger painting quality to this piece, so that's exactly what I did. I used bright primary colors and pretty much just splashed around with my hands. And I had to do it very quickly because the happy song clocks in at just over two and a half minutes. At the same time, Imogen's voice has this beautiful ethereal quality and the lyrics feel adult and lived in. She sings about a baby who purrs like a cat when they get their own way, which I think a lot of parents can relate to. So it's not just a song for babies. I wanted to hit this in-between zone of bright kid-like colors and balance it out with these delicate floating elements. I'm really pleased with how it turned out, and I'd love to hear what you think. You can find the finished painting up on my website, along with the show notes for every episode. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Music for PhDs. And again, an extra big thank you to CJSW, for generously supporting the Music for PhDs podcast. If you have a baby, and a lot of my friends do, feel free to tell Alexa to play the happy song. And the next time you find yourself singing lullabies at some ungodly hour, you can remember that this experience might just be the origin story of all art. So far, we've learned that music is not, in fact, the universal language. But the way we learn music and languages does have some overlap. Babies are sponges, and they're soaking up patterns all the time. That being said, playing classical music to a three-month-old probably doesn't have the intended effect. And that's because the Mozart effect is bullshit. Yes, you heard that right, and yes, it is the reason I have had to earmark this season as explicit. Thanks, iTunes. I may have given away the spoiler, but I hope you'll join us for the next episode where we'll talk about what kind of music does activate your brain. As an extra special bonus gift, I've got a spiffy Spotify playlist for you of awesome study tunes. Thanks again for joining us on Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. <laughs>